My name is Steve Irony. I'm an alcoholic. I'm grateful to God in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous for another day of sobriety. My sobriety date is June 27, 1976. I've had a sponsor since I walked in the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I want to tell you that I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, I absolutely love it. I love the men and women in Alcoholics Anonymous. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous knowing this was not going to work for me, knowing that this was not my problem. And I fell in love with the men and women in Alcoholics Anonymous because you taught me a way of living that was totally impossible for me. You gave me the tools. And it's always a privilege to come to Alcoholics Anonymous and share the experience that I've had. I want to thank Doug and I want to thank the committee for asking me to speak tonight. And I want to tell you that uh, I love carrying the message. And when I was sober, I got sober in Santa Barbara, California. And when I was sober about, uh, oh, about 60 days, I got a call from the intergroup office there in Santa Barbara. And they called me and they said, Steve, we have a newcomer. They called me at 7.30 in the morning. They just happened to know that I was off that day. And they said, we have a newcomer. We'd like you to come down here and help him. Now, I knew at that particular moment that I had been recruited by Alcoholics Anonymous to wear the armor of recovery. And they realized, finally, what a wonderful program I had. I've been sober 60 days. <laughs> so I got dressed and I went down to the intergroup office. And there he was. And I asked him the same question I had been asked. I said, are you willing to go to any length to stay sober? He said that he was. So I took him to a 7 a.m. meeting. We got in the meeting and they asked for any new people. I gave him an elbow, he raised his hand. They gave me an elbow, I gave him an elbow. We walked out of that meeting and I took him to the grocery store. I bought him some Cairo syrup and some orange juice and I mixed it together. I made him drink it. They made me drink it, I'm making him drink it. I bought him a bag of M&M's. I said, you carry around these with you today in case you need them. I don't know why he was going to need them. They made me carry M&M's. I made him carry M&M's. <laughs> then I took him to a noon meeting. After the noon meeting, they asked for newcomers. I gave him the elbow. He raised his hand. After the meeting, I took him to lunch. And in a matter of about 45 minutes, I explained to him everything you need to know about Alcoholics Anonymous. I gave him the whole program in 45 minutes. Then it was time to go to a 2 o'clock meeting. I put him in my car and I took him to a two o'clock meeting. I pulled up to the meeting, I opened the door. He looked at me and he said, Steve, you know, you picked me up at seven o'clock. I had my last drink at 6.30. And I said, I said, that's fantastic. He said, yeah, he said, but I need a drink. Uh, no, I've been acquitted by Alcoholics Anonymous. I knew what to do. I said, okay, I'm not gonna say you do or you don't need a drink, but I'll tell you what, let's go inside this meeting. And at the end of the meeting, if you determine that you need a drink, then, then you can go have a drink. And he thought about it for a minute and he said, no, no. He said, I, I, I need a drink. <laughs> I did the only thing I knew how to do. I started to beg. I said, man, I have spent all day with you. I bought you orange juice and Cairo syrup. I got you M&Ms. I took you to lunch. I brought you these meetings. The least you could do is give me an hour. He said to me, he said, you know what? You really have been good to me. He said, I said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to buy you a drink too. <laughs> so I walked into that meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous that day, and, you know, I was equipped. 
I was ready to carry the message of alcoholism. I went in there, you know, I went to that meeting, I said, I don't want them to read chapter 5, I don't want them to read the traditions, I just want them to ask for a topic. That's right, I got a topic. Well, they read, the, they read chapter 5 in traditions, and when they asked for a topic, I shot my arm straight up. They called on me, and I told them the woe of my day. And I'm going to tell you, it was an excellent meeting. Went around there, and everybody said how wonderful I had been, what a great job I had done. But you know, when you go to meetings like this, there's always some old-timer that'll screw things up for you. You know what I'm saying? There's a guy there sober about 15 years. He looked me straight in the face and he said, Steve, who died and made you God? Well, that wasn't what I wanted to hear. But what the thing he told me next gave me freedom. He said, Steve, in Alcoholics Anonymous, we don't get them sober and we don't get them drunk. We carry the message and we stay sober. And that's the deal. We carry the message and we stay sober. I want to tell you that I, I did the things they asked me to do when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, they said, welcome, you belong here. I didn't feel like I belonged here. I mean, I had a lot of people tell me I belonged places. And I didn't feel like I belonged there either. I had policemen tell me I belonged in jail. I didn't feel like that. I had wives tell me I belonged at home. I didn't feel like that. I had employers say I belonged at work. I didn't feel like that. And just because you said I belong here didn't make me feel like I belong here. But I want to tell you this, that God did for me what I couldn't do for myself. He put me in that position that I was as willing as only the dying could be. And they asked me to do some things, and I started doing some things they asked me to do. I mean, miracles happened in my life. I never, things that you understand in Alcoholics Anonymous that they don't understand outside of these rooms. I mean, I'd never forget. When I was sober 30 days, I went up to a guy and I said to him, let me tell you something. I've had a job for 30 days. I've been there every day. I got there on time, and I stayed all day, and I worked while I was there. Now, he said, no way. I said, no way, way. Now, people in Alcoholics Anonymous, they understand that. People out there say, I've had a job for 30 years. Well, 30 days doesn't mean anything. You know, I got married in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been married 32 years. And in 32 years, I haven't found it necessary to date anybody. Before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I'd been married, divorced three times. I was 25 years old when I got sober. I was into getting married, I just wasn't into being married. You know, I, why would you want to be married to somebody who'd be married to me? You know, I tell you something. We get a life here. I look out here, I tell you, I was talking to some people before the meeting. We get a life here that's totally impossible. If you've been sober a few weeks or a few months or a few years, you're about to go on a journey that unlocks things for you that you just can't believe. You know, when I tell you that I love Alcoholics Anonymous and I love the members of Alcoholics Anonymous, the reason that's so important, because I was one of those guys that I didn't think I was capable of loving anything. I saw people that had relationships that truly cared about other people. And I'd sit there and think, why can't I do that? Why can't I do that? I suck the life out of every relationship I'm in. I abuse every relationship I have. Why can't I be like it? And I just said, God just didn't give me the ability to do that. Well, the reason I couldn't do that was because I kept blocking God off. And you showed me how to get out of the way and let God in. And you told me how to trust God. You know, I took my first drink when I was 14 or 15 years old. I don't know the exact age because I didn't know I was going to have to report for it later. But I never want to forget what I drank. 
Black and white scotch whiskey and cold 45 malt liquor mixed together. Oh, please. I mean, I'm going to tell you something. I never want to forget. I, you know, I drank it. I was on a boat. I drank that liquor tonight, and I knew instantly that I had found the secret to living. I mean, I'll never forget. I laid out on that boat, puking my guts out. And the only thing I could think about is what a minimal price to pay for the secret of living. If all you have to do is just throw up every now and then, you'd have a different speaker tonight. But I, tell you, I knew that I found the secret. I didn't know it didn't affect anybody else that way, but that's the way it affected me. And I want to tell you something. When you come to Alcoholics Anonymous, if you're anything like I am, you're willing to go to any length to drink. I was willing to sell my soul. I was willing to compromise anything in my life. I was willing to prostitute my, my entire being for the right to drink. You know, people that don't understand alcoholics say the strangest things. People that really love us, people that really want the best for us, say the strangest things. They really want to help us. They really care. You have them come to you, they say something like this. Steve, you know, if you didn't drink so much, you'd be all right. Steve, if you just didn't smoke those funny cigarettes, you'd be all right. Steve, if you just didn't put that white stuff up your nose, you'd be all right. Steve, if you quit t- taking those little black pills, you know, the ones that make you grind your teeth and talk about stuff you don't know nothing about, you'd be all right. Now, when they say that to you, you know at that moment they really want to help you. They really want good things to happen. But you also know at that moment they have no idea who they're dealing with. But what you do is you sit there and you shake your head up and down and you, you have this thought. If I quit drinking, I just might kill you. <laughs> See, we come in Alcoholics Anonymous and people that don't understand us think you and I have a drinking problem. We got a sobriety problem. I could, there's only one thing that ever drives an alcoholic to drink. Sobriety. <laughs> sobriety will drive you to drink every time. You have to treat your sobriety, and Alcoholics Anonymous has the tools to allow you to do that. At the age of 17, I got an opportunity to make the first major decision in my life. <clears throat> Once I started drinking, I started going to jail. And I stood in front of a judge, and he looked down at me. He said, Steve, I'm going to either send you up the river for five years, or you can join the Marine Corps. And I said, well, I'll join the Marine Corps because I'm sick and tired of people telling me what to do. <laughs> and I joined the Marine Corps, and uh, I went into Private E1, and I got out of Private E1. <laughs> I, I, I did get promoted a few times. I just couldn't stay promoted, you know. Well, in 1971, the Marine Corps and I agreed on something. They wanted me to get out, and I wanted to get out. And I got out, and I woke up one day, and I realized what my problem was. I need to get married. That's, that's not really a strange thought. I, I wasn't dating anybody, but I, you know, I figured, you know, if you're an alcoholic like I am, you have to meet them, fall in love, and marry them within 90 days, right? Yeah, we can do that. Oh, we can do that. I love you. No, I really love you. Yeah, God. <laughs> then you get married and you realize there's something really wrong with them. Why would they marry me? You know that one over there that won't talk to me? That one. If she married me, then I'd be all right. Like I say, I was married and divorced three times. I, I never celebrated a year anniversary. I did marry the same girl twice. Well, we, we got divorced and she had the audacity to start dating somebody else. 
So I captured her and married her again. Got her pregnant right away so I could hold her hostage for 18 years. I want to tell you that I'm so grateful that I I got sober in 76. Back in the time that I was out there drinking, there were no computers. So my driving, I had more DUIs than I could count on both hands. My driving privileges were permanently revoked. I never forget standing in front of a judge and he said, you're a hazard to the citizens of the state of Florida, so I'm permanently revoking your driving privileges. Now, if you'd be an alcoholic like me, you stand and you think, well, it doesn't really take a driver's license to drive a car. It only takes a driver's license if you get caught, right? And you know what? This time it's going to be different. No, it's going to be different. I'm going to drink, but this time it's going to be different. You know, that alcoholic insanity. You know, I I never once, ever, ever, ever got married and said, let me see if I can't destroy this woman's life and everybody involved. I never did that. Every time I got married, you know what I said? This time it's going to be different. This time it's going to be different. The problem was I didn't have the tools for it to be different. The problem was drinking wasn't an option for me. It was a necessity. It was a requirement. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I want to tell you this, that nobody could say anything to me make, make me feel worse about myself than I already did. And the only thing that gave me the answer to that was alcohol and drugs. That magic that happened. When you took that liquor and you put it in your system, and all of a sudden you realized, they're just jealous. Yeah. They realize how talented I am, and they're trying to hold me back. 1974, I got arrested back-to-back times. I got two DUIs, back-to-back. First time I got arrested for a DUI, I ran a, ran a car. I, now, I, didn't have, I, didn't, I couldn't buy a car because I don't have a driver's license. So I went to work selling cars. Now, that's right. They, selling cars is just, it's just a wonderful place for drunks like me. You know? They gave me a car. I, back in this time, they didn't, you didn't go to DMV and they gave you a driver's license. You went to DMV and they gave you a paper license. And they were going to mail you your permanent license out of Tallahassee. I drove on that paper license for years. I never got one out of it. My license was revoked before they could ever mail me one. So, so I got, but I got a company car and, uh, and, I, I, and I was out drinking and I ran this car head on to a palm tree in a parking lot. It was one of those situations where you ever, you know, take a drink and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I put my foot on the gas and I wanted to take it off and put it on the brake. I really did. I just couldn't communicate my head with my foot. And I jumped a curb and hit a palm tree. And I was never grateful for that until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I realized right behind that palm tree was a swimming pool. And God was looking out for fools and drunks, and I was covered on both counts. And I got pulled off that palm tree, and it didn't take long before the police came, and they took me to jail, and they charged me with DUI. You know what I did? I called my attorney like I always called my attorney and asked him what the price was going to be. And he said, Steve, the price is going to be five years. I said, you don't understand. He said, no, you don't understand. I've talked to the judge and there's nothing I can do for you. I was 23 years old. I did the only thing a grown man would do. I started crying. I called my mama. She said something to me that no one ever said to me my entire life. She said, Steve, I think you're an alcoholic. Well, I know I'm not an alcoholic. I know, I know, I know what my problem is. I'm nuts. No, I know that. I know, I, I, know I, I am a crazy person. I know that. I know normal people don't live like I live. Normal people don't... You know, when I told, told my wife I was going to be home, I meant it. I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. 
I knew that I, you know, normal people don't do that. So I knew that I was nuts, and the only thing that gave me semblance of sanity was alcohol and drugs. And I wasn't about to give that up. She asked me if, I, if I'd like her to call Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I had never heard of Alcoholics Anonymous. Think about it. If you get one DUI today, they sentence you to Alcoholics Anonymous. You've got to go to three or four meetings. I had, I had more DUIs I could count on both hands. My license was permanently revoked, and I had no idea what Alcoholics Anonymous was. I thought it was a government agency, the Department of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> a guy called me on the phone. He said, my name's Marty, and I'm an alcoholic. Sounds like a job title. And I knew he worked for the government because I'd spent time in the Marine Corps. And he asked me questions that had nothing to do with the problem. My problem is I'm getting ready to go up the river for five years. He wants to talk to me about my relationships and missing time for work. And, and I, but it dawned on me, I know what this is. This is the audio part of the test. This is the audio part of the test. He's, he said to me, would you like me to come by your office? And I said that I would. Now I know he wants to see the visual to see if I look like an alcoholic. I'm, I tell you something, I'm, thinking, I'm sitting there thinking, I'm almost breaking my arm patting myself on the back. I'm thinking that, that attorney can't get me out of this, but I'm going to get out. I haven't, I, have, I haven't even had Marty in my office yet, and I'm thinking to myself, all I've got to do is get him to come to my office. I'm going to get certified by the state of Florida as an alcoholic. I, I'll get you know, like a driver's license with my picture on it. It says, Steve Viney, state of Florida, alcoholic. I, now, no, so once I convince him I'm an alcoholic, then I can get this ID saying I'm an alcoholic. Then I'll take it and show it to the judge. And now that I know that I'm an alcoholic, clearly I won't drink anymore. And there's really no reason for me to go to jail. And now that I think about it, it's really the state of Florida's fault. <laughs> now, if they had notified me earlier, I could have quit drinking a long time ago. And I hung up that phone and Marty was coming to my office and the fear crept over me. I knew that Marty was going to pull up to my office in a white 1963 Ford Falcon, and it said on the door, Department of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he'd come in and ask for me by name. Isn't it incredible? We don't care who sees us out there drinking and destroying everything in our life, but heaven forbid anybody see us trying to do something about it. Marty pulled up to my office in a brand new Porsche. It was a program of attraction. I wanted what he had. And he came in my office, and I was at my office because... They had not decided what to do with me yet. And so Marty came in and he started asking me the same questions he'd asked me on the phone. Finally, I stopped him and I said, Marty, do you think I'm an alcoholic? He said, Steve, normally we allow you to make that decision. He said, however, in your case, I'll make the decision. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm thinking, I must be the most brilliant person in the world. I mean, I, mean, I do have this disease, and some, some of you might relate to it. It's called terminal intelligence. Yeah. If you're sitting in this meeting or any meeting like this, if you have this disease, I'm, I'm very blessed. I just have a mild case of it. But if you have terminal intelligence, here's what happens. You'll be sitting in a meeting like this or, or a discussion meeting, and your head will say something like, I don't need to listen to this. I'm certainly not going to get a sponsor. I'm not, I'm not doing those steps. All i got to do is figure it out, and I'm going to be all right. And we die every go insane, busy trying to figure this thing out. We've got to get that place where we're willing to go to any length. And Marty asked me that question that day. I'll never forget it. He said to me, Steve, are you willing to go to any length to stay sober? What I thought he said was, are you willing to do anything not to go to jail? And I said, yes. He said, okay, would you, would you, would you be willing to go to some meetings? And I said, I would. So he took me to these meetings. And I want to tell you something. I was a masterpiece at Alcoholics Anonymous. I really was. I went to meetings. I got emotional at the right moments. 
you know, and, you know, and I shared, woe is me, and I'm so thankful to be here. And then I'd walk out the back door thinking somebody's going to come out there to save me. No one ever came out there to save me. I think these alcoholics are really, really slow. That's their cue. But you know what happens if you walk out the door and they don't follow you? You quit walking out the door. It doesn't work. Well, the court sent me to talk to a psychiatrist. And I talked to a psychiatrist. And he recommended I go to a place called Avon Park. I know this deal is coming together. Matter of fact, I know this deal is coming together so well, I think it's time for me to have a few drinks. That's right. So I go out around noon like I, like I normally do, and I start drinking. I mean, I was good for the first three or four hours at work, and then I'd leave, and there's, it was always who knew what I was coming back. But I start drinking at noon, and I, alcohol had, had a magic effect on me. I don't know if anybody else can relate to this. But alcohol had an effect where I would go into bars and I would start drinking and boyfriends and husbands would disappear. And their wives or girlfriends just couldn't tolerate not being with me. It was an incredible phenomenon. I, I tell you, it just, and just so happened that day, there's, there's a young lady in there with three men. One was her husband and two other guys. Well, I took that drink, the one that had the magic in it, and they disappeared. And I knew... God was good. So I, I left to go to the restroom and I came back and these three guys were standing at the door and they recommended that I not come back in the bar. Now I am crazy, but I'm not stupid. I looked at them, I sized it up and I thought that was a good idea. So I went and I got in my car and they stood at the door watching me to make sure I got in my car. Well, the minute I got in my car, I remembered that earlier that day I had bought a 357. And it occurred to me there was one more thing I needed to tell them. So I pulled my car up to the curb. I said, I need to tell you something. They, all three of them walked over there. I, re- I reached out and I pulled the hammer back on that 357 and I said, if you say one more word to me, I'm going to blow your brains out. You know what they said? My God, he's got a gun. You know what I said? My God, I've got a gun. I shot that gun. I put it in my glove box. I got on the freeway and did 85 miles an hour. And I assure you, if you do 85 miles an hour, you will get pulled over. I got pulled by five policemen. And I want to tell you something. After that little incident, i have been drinking all day. I had the adrenaline going to me so fast, I could recite the Alfred, alphabet frontwards and backwards. I could walk a straight line. But while this one policeman was talking to me, the other one opened my glove box. You know what he said? My God, he's got a gun. And it's just been fired. They will take you to jail for that. They took me straight to jail. And now I'm terrified. I'm terrified. I got no tools. I, got, I don't know what to do. Because now I go to work and they say, you don't work here anymore. You're done. So I got no job, no hope, no friends. But what I do have is I, I've got my attorney. I've got the court-appointed psychiatrist. And you, you have to know how to talk to psychiatrists. There's an art to it, right? He spent some time talking about my mother, so I spent some time talking about his mother, right? You got to know how to do that. And I got Marty from A. I have my own, own entourage. We're going to court. I can't, this, I know that this is working out for me. And I go to court, and we're all sitting there in one row. I don't have a job, but I got an entourage. And they call my case up. I walk up there, my attorney walks up there, the psychiatrist walks up there, and Marty, he just sits there. I turned around and looked at him straight. You know what he said to me? It's going to be all right. <laughs> I thought, if I ever get out of this, I'm never going back to that A&A again. They don't, they don't get it. They just do not get it. 
I stood in front of the judge, and the judge, he, he, he said this, Steve, everybody recommends that you go to Avon Park. It's a treatment center. He said, I want to tell you something. I don't think you're an alcoholic. At that moment, I knew why they made him the judge. He knew what I knew. I wasn't no friggin' drunk. I was a nut. I knew that. If, if stopping drinking would fix my problem, you know, I'd been a long time ago. I, re, I tried not drinking before. I hated it. I couldn't stand it. Every time I quit drinking, I was stuck with what I tried to avoid, me. The judge said to me, you're not worth being on my conscience. Now, that's where he blew it. I wasn't worth being on my conscience. What I care about his conscience. Nobody can say anything to an alcoholic to make them hate themselves worse than they already do. That's why I drink. I cannot stand being me. He said, I'm going to send you up for 30 days, and when you come back, and you'll come back. I don't care if it's for jaywalking. You're going up for five years. I walked out of that courtroom, and I did that 30 days. I got out of jail, and I got a phone call from Marty. Marty wanted to know if I wanted to go to a meeting. <laughs> That's right. I said, Marty. I said, I've been to four or five meetings. A couple of things I'd like to tell you. You guys read the same thing at every meeting. Don't you think you could find something new to read? But now I don't want to irritate him because I might need this A&A outfit again. I don't, you know, I never know. So I don't want to, and I said to him, I said, look, I really appreciate your help. And if I can ever help you, please let me know. He said, Steve, Alcoholics Anonymous is not a game and we don't come here to play. He said, Alcoholics Anonymous is a way of life and you'll get out of it exactly what you put into it. He said, people come into Alcoholics Anonymous and they play around with this thing and they die or they go insane through the use of alcohol and drugs. And I thought to myself, who is he trying to scare? You can't scare me. I've been terrified my entire life. And if you're a man and you're terrified, you know what you do with that. You just turn it into anger because that's acceptable. He's an angry man. I mean, I attack people because I'm afraid of them, and I don't want them to know. And I hung up that phone, and that, that ex-wife of mine let me move back in, and, and we, I, we had a little boy, and he was about a year and a half old at the time, and I went out to those bars, and I drank that $1.75 up. And I happened to marry narrow-minded women. And the reason I know that is I came home at 3 o'clock in the morning sober. You know what she said to me? If you're going to come home at 3 o'clock in the morning, you might as well be drunk. Now, do you know how hard it is to come home at 3 o'clock in the morning sober? Do you think she appreciated that? She did not. But I kept doing the same thing. And finally, one of my friends, you know how we have friends out in their bars that really look out for our, 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 our well-being? They really have our interest at heart. One of the guys came up to me who really had analyzed my particular situation. And here's what he said to me. He said, Steve, maybe you can't drink. Maybe you need to stay away from hard liquor. What you need to do is smoke marijuana and drink wine. Touch my heart. <laughs> that night I became a great connoisseur of wine. Yeah, you know what an alcoholic is, a great connoisseur. That's when you stand in the liquor store and you're looking at the label trying to figure out what the alcohol content is, right? I mean, I drank a wine that ain't never seen a grape, right? You know, with a twist on cap. I came home drunk and I looked at her and I looked at my son and I couldn't stand it. Once again, I saw the reflection of me. And once again, I knew I was a loser, and I, I, I couldn't do it. So I moved out. I left like I always left. And I got, my, I got my son on the weekends, and 
And, uh, I, you know, and I, the last weekend that I got him, he was two years old. I lived in an apartment complex, and out this apartment complex, they had this pool, and on the weekends, they bring kegs of beer out there. Now, I, my favorite booze was whatever you had, right? I mean, I would never turn, I never asked anybody what it would do. I just took it. I drank it. I just wanted to be different than where I was. I started drinking beer that, that afternoon about by the pool. And I went home around 6 o'clock, took my son with me, and then about 8 o'clock I forgot I had him. And I left. I left him at home all by himself. He was two years old. And I walked in that, back, back in that apartment around 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning and opened the door, and there he was. He was asleep on the couch. And you can't say anything to make me hate myself more than I did that day. What in the world could be wrong with you? How can you leave your son alone? You, you can't even stay sober for one day? I'm terrified of what I'm going to do. I'm terrified of it. How do you go to his mother and say, I can't take my son on the weekends because I'll be drunk and I forget I have him. So you know what I did? I knew somebody who lived in Santa Barbara, California. So I went home and I told my wife that I was moving to Santa Barbara. I called this friend of mine and she clearly didn't know me very well because she said I could come to Santa Barbara and stay with her. Yeah. She probably hadn't forget about that today. I moved out to San. I, I went. I, one thing I was we were talking about at dinner. One thing I loved about when I drank is that I, I was one of those guys that I went open bank accounts, took all the money out, then wrote checks. I never wrote a check when there was actually money in the bank because there was no computers. They couldn't figure it out. But you know, then you go around and see which bars have your check on the wall, right? Well, that day I wrote a bad check to Delta Airlines for a one-way ticket to Santa Barbara, and I got to Santa Barbara. And you know what? I traveled 3,000 miles, and there they were, the same people I left in Jacksonville, Florida. And they were the same because I was the same. And I'll never forget, I got out there, and I started going out, and I was drinking every night, and I was coming home. I did this, exactly the same thing there I'd been doing here. But I clearly misjudged my friend. I came home one morning around 4 o'clock in the morning, and she met me in the driveway. And she said to me, you have to move. I said, do you mean at the end of the month? She said, no, you have to move now. I said, well, can you give me to the end of the week? And she said, no. I said, well, I don't have any money. And she said, well, that's a problem, but it's not my problem. You know what that makes you? Homeless. That's what that makes you. And I want to tell you, if you're going to be homeless, I recommend Santa Barbara. It's a wonderful place to be homeless. I slept, I slept under a big fig tree in Santa Barbara, and I tell you, it was a wonderful place. And I had the, the trunk on the tree went up about eight or nine feet, and I had neighbors in every one of the trunks. Yeah, so... You just put it, no, you put a piece of cardboard in there, you get your glad bag luggage, and you're right at home. The only trouble is you can't leave it there because your neighbors will steal it from you. But I want to tell you this, that alcohol systematically stripped everybody out of my life that ever tried to care for me. Anybody that tried to help me, alcohol systematically took them out because I abused every single relationship. And when that happened, I want to tell you the day happened that terrified me. I took a drink, and it didn't work. No matter how much I drank, all I could do was get physically drunk, and I couldn't turn my head off anymore. And I'm terrified. I'm stuck with a person I can't live with. I hate me. I can't do this. God, please help me. And then I remember, in a courtroom in Jacksonville, Florida, Marty had said, it's going to be all right. June 17, 1976, I called the Intergroup of Alcoholics Anonymous. Back then, they called it the Central Office. I called the intergroup of Alcoholics Anonymous, and this woman from Dallas, Texas, answered the phone. I said, my name's Steve, and I got a problem. She said, I know, honey, I got the same problem. 
I thought that was strange because I hadn't told her what my problem was. She said to me, why don't you come up here to the intergroup office? And I made a decision to do that. But when you go, I would go up for my interview. Now, I'll tell you what I looked like when I came to you. I weighed 285 pounds. I had an afro. I had a Fu Manchu. I put on my best pink suit. I put on a blue silk shirt, pink tie with a picture of a naked lady on it, and my platform shoes. It takes a lot of work to look like that. You don't look that way by accident. And if you have an afro and you're sleeping in the woods, you never get it round. You always got a flat spot and a twig in it somewhere. I walked up, to, I walked up, up State Street in Santa Barbara to the intergroup office. I walked upstairs and it shocked me that it said on the door, Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, I thought somebody might see me go in. I'm sleeping under a tree. I opened the door to Alcoholics Anonymous, and she was there, and there was a guy standing there. I'll tell you what he looked like. He was about 45 years old. He had a flat top. He had one of his sports jackets with patches on the sleeve. He had on jeans. He had on cowboy boots, and had one of his big old cowboy belt buckles. And he looked like I wanted to feel. He told me something that day that I've never forgotten in 45 years. He said, Steve, if you've got a war going on inside, it makes a difference who wins, you lose. He said, the only way to win this battle is surrender. And I didn't know anything about surrender, but that day I knew I was beat into submission. I was absolutely terrified that I was stuck with me. I was willing. He asked me the same question that Marty had asked me two years earlier. He asked me, are you willing to go any lengths to stay sober? What I thought he said to Steve, are you willing to do anything not to hurt anymore? Because I couldn't make the pain go away. I couldn't get the hate out of my head. I couldn't get the terror to go away. I was stuck with me. God, I can't do this. And I said I was willing to go to any length. And he said to me, okay, you got to go to a meeting tonight. And I said, well, I can't go to a meeting tonight. He said, he said, why not? I said, well, I'm sleeping under a tree, the fig tree. And if I go to a meeting, my neighbors will steal my stuff. He said, you got to go to a meeting. And I made a commitment and I went to the meeting. I went to, got to that meeting. Guy came, picked me up, took me to that meeting. I went to that meeting. I'm going to tell you something. I thought I, I thought I'd hit the lottery. I had the lottery. I mean, it was going. I walked out. You know what they had? They had two-day-old donuts. Uh-huh. And cookies. I went there. And, of course, I thought I was, I walked up there. Well, nobody's looking like I stick it in my pocket here, right? Like they cared, right? Nobody else was going to eat them. And I had my, I thought, I have hit the, I'm going to sell these when I go back to my, my house. I got all this stuff. Then there, I looked, and there was a guy, one of my neighbors was at the meeting. He came up to, you know what he said to me? He said, he said, look, on the way back home, do you want to smoke some marijuana? I said, no, sir. I need this. I'm not going to smoke. He said, lighten up. I just asked. So I left that meeting and smoked my own marijuana. Because I want to look good while I'm dying. And I want to tell you something. I am so grateful that no one ever asked me to leave Alcoholics Anonymous. And for the next 10 days, I went to meetings and I was smoking marijuana every single day. And finally, I heard a guy say this. If you're not sure we, you want what we have, ask yourself this question. Do you want what you have? And God, I didn't want what I had. I didn't believe this Alcoholics Anonymous would work for me or anything, but I knew, I knew I couldn't do it. And that night I got rid of everything, and I made a commitment. I said, I know this Alcoholics Anonymous won't work, but I'm going to do everything they ask me to do. So I'm going to be the exception in the big book. They're going to say, if you want what we have, except for Steve Binding. He's the only guy that did everything we asked him to do and got drunk. So I made a commitment. And I, and I could tell that the old-timers abused the newcomers. 
You know, they make you set up the meeting. Back then, everybody smoked, so you had to set out ashtrays, porcelain coffee cups, you had to clean those. And they all stood in their little circles talking to each other, right? But I kept doing the stuff. And they made me call people and ask them how they were doing, and I didn't care. One day, I walked into a meeting, and a guy walked up to me, and he said, Hey, my name's John. Thanks for calling. And for the first time, I felt like I belonged somewhere. For the first time. I felt like I might have a home and I wasn't taking somebody else's seat. And I felt like there might be hope for me. And I, I did everything Alcoholics Anonymous asked me to do. I, my sponsor put me through the steps. And I, you know, I, I took that first step and I surrendered and I accepted. And, and, you know, and then I came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. I mean, I had proof of that. I, I'm a guy who couldn't keep a job, and now I'm going to work every single day. I'm staying there all day. I'm giving them my best effort. And I'm actually getting a check at the end of the week. I can't believe it. Then we make that decision, turn our will and our life over to the care of God. And I want to tell you something. I was terrified. I'm going to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. I've got to pay rent. I don't have any money. My sponsor said to me, you're no longer in the sales business, you're in the service business. Your job is to be of service. You be of love and service. You stand at the door of that dealership, everybody that comes in there, you shake their hand. You take them to where they want to go. You don't point them, you take them. They want to go to accounting, you take them to accounting. They want to go to service, you take them to service. They want to see another salesman, you do that. You're in the service business. And I thought, well, I guess he's going to pay my rent because they ain't going to pay me for doing that. The amazing thing happened. I trusted him. I did what he asked me to do, and I made more sales over the next two weeks than I'd ever made. I couldn't believe it. And I got the understanding of this, that God has made each one of us perfect, perfect, with all our strengths and all our weaknesses, with all our assets and all our defects. But if you're truly grateful to God, you want to maximize who you are. You want to maximize those gifts. You know, I always wanted your talent or your talent or your talent. I didn't want what God gave me. But if we say we're grateful, I want to maximize the gifts he's given me. I want to be the best version of Steve Vining I can possibly be. And every day, I'd go to work, and I'd say, God, give me the willingness to surrender. Give me the willingness to trust you. Give me the willingness to be the best version of me that I can be and to glorify you. I had no idea what that meant, but I was willing to do it. And no matter what happened during the day, no matter what the results were, I stopped and I thanked him. You know what happened? I got out of my own way. I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous in 1976, and I was the problem. And I stand here today, and I'm still the problem. The difference is you've given me the tools to get out of the way. And then it came to that fourth and fifth step. Now we've got to do the thing that you know they're going to throw me out of Alcoholics Anonymous when they hear this. I want to tell you, I, start, I, 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 sat, I, I sat down, and I started writing this, this fourth step. And all of a sudden, a, a magic thing happens when you do that. When you sit down and you actually write the fourth step, you can't deny who you are. You can't say, yeah, but, guilty with an explanation, Your Honor. You write down who you are and your part and what you did. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at me. And I, I know, I know this, is, this is going to get me thrown out of Alcoholics Anonymous. When they find out what a scumbag I am, they're going to throw me out of here. Yeah, I might have a drinking problem, but I am lower than low. I, will, I, I have no integrity whatsoever. And I put this all down because I'm terrified. If I don't put it down, I heard people say, you're going to get out of what you put into it. And I'm terrified. If I don't put it all down, I won't make it. And God, I can't go back out there. So I put it all down. 
and then I met with my sponsor. And I went through this, this fifth step with him. And I want to tell you that it, it, it terrified me. And I got through with that fifth step, and I didn't feel any relief. I was terrified. I figured he's going to go to a meeting and, and put the bulletin out. He, this guy might be a drunk, but you need to stay way away from him. He's got some problems we're not prepared to deal with. But let me tell you what happened. I went to a meeting. And about two or three days after going to me, I, I, I met with him at a meeting. And I walked in the meeting, and I knew something had changed. I knew something had changed. For the first time in my life, I had an intimate relationship with another human being. See, because he didn't, he didn't love me in spite of who I was. He loved me because of who I was. And he said, me too. But today we don't have to do that, Steve. And now I'm not isolated. Now I'm in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous, and for the first time in my life, I've got some hope. And I, and I found something that I didn't know would exist, and that's intimacy with another human being. I could never have that. You can't have intimacy when you disguise who you are. You can't give it away. You can't, you know, no one can love you when they don't know who you are. And God, you don't want them to do that. Now I've, I've got a little bit of hope. And I want to tell you that, uh, <clears throat> that uh, my sponsor said to me he didn't want me to get in a relationship for the first year. Now, I, I, if you're new or nearly new to Alcoholics Anonymous, to tell you this. If you're bad in relationships when you're drinking, you will be bad in relationships in sobriety. The difference is, in Alcoholics Anonymous, we have the tools to learn how to get better. If we're willing to... You see, what I found out in Alcoholics Anonymous is you can't love someone until you start to learn yourself. You've got to start to love yourself. And the way you do that is you start living differently. What a miracle it is when you walk in the bathroom and you look in the mirror and you're glad that you're there. And you don't want to be somebody else, somewhere else doing something else. And you're grateful to God, what God's given you. That's when you start getting the willingness to get close to other people. You know, I looked at the sixth and seventh step, and I, and I tell you, I looked at all my defects and my shortcomings. My defects being the things that I, that I was doing that I shouldn't do, and the shortcomings of things that I, sh- that I wasn't doing that I should be doing. And I put those all in writing, and I came to terms with who I am. And what I realized was that in the sixth and seventh step, it brought me back to the first step. And that is that my name is Steve Vining, and I'm powerless. I'm powerless. You cannot... Get freedom for what you deny. If you deny who you are, you are a prisoner to it. And I'll tell you something. I was locked up many, many times. Whenever I got locked up, I knew when I was going to get out. But that prison between our two ears, there seems like there's no freedom. But there is. The freedom is acceptance and surrender. When I accept who I am, every single day, I give it to God. Every single day. What an amazing deal that is. Then we have that eighth and ninth step. You know, now, we, now we've got to clean up the records of the past. Now, I don't know about you, but like I said, I wrote, the only time I wrote checks was when I was out of money. So I have thousands of thousands of dollars all over the place. I, I, own, pers- I, I own a lot of personal amends, emotional amends. I, own, I certainly own emotional amends to my ex-wife. And my sponsor said to me, do you want to make amends to your ex-wife? And I said, yeah. He said, leave her alone. <laughs> he said, you're not in a position to be there. Just leave her alone. And I did that. And then he sat down, and, I, and all those amends I had to make, and all those financial amends, and I owed thousands of, thousands of dollars. And I wasn't making much money, but he said to me, he said, I want you to sit down, and I want you to write a check for $5 to everybody you owe money to. And I thought, man, I have some of them like 15000 20000 It's going to take a long time, but $5 a shot. 
But you know what I did? I did exactly what he asked me to do. And I sat down there and I wrote checks for $5. Now, let's listen to this. I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to chemically induce self-respect. And I got it for five bucks. I got it for five bucks. The feeling I got when I wrote a check and I knew that it was going to be good. No one ever sent that check back to me. They took the checks. And little by little, I paid off all those debts. You know, besides, you know, I told you I compromised everything that was good to me. I used to rob churches. And, uh, you know, I'd go to the churches. I'd get dressed up on Sunday and I'd go into churches and everybody would be singing in the choir and all that. I'd go to the choir room and borrow money from the people in the choir. And, uh, and I don't, you know, and that's what I did. And so I, I told my sponsor, I said, you know, I can go to jail for that. He said, well, if that's what it takes, that's what you'll have to do. I said, yeah, but I've got to pay child support to my ex-wife. I can't pay that if I'm in jail. He said, why don't you call her and ask her if it's okay? I knew that was my out. Because I knew she was going to say, I need my money. I called her and she, she screwed me up. I told her, I said, if I do this, I may go to jail. And she said, I think you need to do it. And I'm terrified. And I come back to Jacksonville, the three churches that I had taken money from. And I went to each one of those churches and I, I told them what I'd done. The first two churches I did, we came up with a money amount and I started making payments. So I went to the last church. And never forget, I sit there in front of the pastor and he looked at me and he said this. He said, Steve, he said, I want to tell you something. He said, uh, I forgive you, and God forgives you. And all you've got to do is forgive yourself. Now, I walked out of that church, and I thought I made amends. I went back to Santa Barbara, California. I told my sponsor we're gone, and he didn't say a word to me. About a week later, I called him. I said, I'm, just, I'm feeling terrible. I don't know what's going on. He said, you did what you always do. You said you were sorry. He said, it's not a matter of whether they approve of you or not. We don't do these steps so other people like us. We do these steps so that we can approve of ourselves. And I understood that. And I made that decision. And I called that pastor and I told him, I figured out about how much I owed and I started making payments. And I got freedom again. I got freedom again. You know, and then, and then what, a, what a blessing it is that we have a tenth step. We have a tenth step that gives us the ability to do inventory on a regular basis. We, and we can review that with our sponsor. We can do a spot check inventory. We can do a day in inventory. We can do an annual inventory. But we have the ability to look at our lives. Because I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to get off track. It's easy for me to lose focus. It's easy for me to rationalize bad behavior. Well, you deserved it anyway. If you wouldn't have done that, I wouldn't have done it. Right? But because we have these tools, we can take an inventory and take a look at ourselves. I love the 11th step. Because in the 11th step, I found the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was sober 12 years. And I was sitting in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I looked around me, and there were people in that meeting, and they looked very happy. They looked like they'd found the answer. They looked much happier than me. It really irritated me a lot. And I thought to myself, you know what? When they fall off that pink cloud, I'll be right here waiting on them. That's right. And I had to sit in those meetings, and all of a sudden, they weren't falling off that pink cloud. They were truly happy. You know what I found out? They were seeking to improve their conscious contact with God. I still had the same relationship at 12 years of sobriety with God that I had at the third step. I had not grown at all. And once again, God put me in enough pain that I surrendered. Once again. And I realized that if I'm going to get this thing, I have to be willing to grow spiritually. That's my obligation. And I'm going to tell you this. I've been sober 12 years, and I had a pretty good life. But when I took this step, I realized I almost missed it all. I almost missed what Alcoholics Anonymous offers us. Alcoholics Anonymous offers us a life that we can feel totally free. 
that we can truly trust in God. We walk around this meeting and say, oh, yeah, I trust in God. Do you really? Do you really trust in God? Are you willing to rely on him? Are you willing to take the actions and leave the results up to him? The only way I could do that was to seek to improve my conscious contact. And I do that today on a regular basis. We have prayer and meditation. We get involved in, uh, in church and we do things that, that make us get closer to the God of our own understanding. And that's what's important. You know, I remember when I was new in Alcoholics Anonymous, I sat in a meeting and listened to a guy stand up there and he said, you know, I have a personal relationship with God that I understand and you can't have it. He said, but if you'd like to develop, develop a special relationship with God that you understand, I'll show you what I did. I never forgot that. We come here and then we, then we do what we have to do. Once we apply these principles in our life, we have to give it back. We have to celebrate this thing called sobriety. And we do that by sharing what we can give them away. I want to tell you this. Tell you, I want to end this by telling you a, a, a situation that I went through in sobriety that I believe literally saved my life. I was sober three years, and I had gotten into a relationship, as you can imagine. I got in a relationship. I was sober a little over a year. Now, I will tell you this, that, you know, your sponsor says don't get emotionally involved the first year. I got emotionally involved holding hands during the Lord's Prayer, right? <laughs> you know, when she gives you that special squeeze. And, yeah, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. And you know that God sent her there for you, and you're going to be Mr. and Mrs. AA. And you know that God is good and AA works. And even when bad things were happening, they were really good. And then she leaves with her husband. And then you know everything's bad and it's always been bad. But I, found I got involved in a relationship after I was sober a year with somebody that was not in Alcoholics Anonymous. I think she got in this relationship because she never met anybody quite like me. And she was in this, we were in this relationship for a couple of years and I had an opportunity in business to go, move to Tampa, Florida. And I got to Tampa, Florida, and I was there for just, just a few weeks, and I called her and I said to her, I think we should get married. And she said, I don't think that's a good idea. I said, well, does that mean you want to wait till the end of the year? She said, no, I don't think it's a good idea. I said, well, do you think we should do it after the first of the year? She said, listen closely. We're not getting married. I want to tell you, I was sober three years. I hung up the phone. I didn't want to drink. I wanted to die. I felt like somebody had just kicked me in the gut. I did the only thing I knew how to do. I called my mama. And I started telling her what happened. You know what she said to me? She said, you say you've been sober three years, but you sound just like you did when you were drinking. You know what? I don't have to listen to this crap. I hung up the phone. I called my sponsor. I told him what was going on. I got about halfway through my story, and all of a sudden I realized I had a dial tone. I called him back. I said, we got disconnected. He said, we certainly did. <laughs> he said, we're going to continue to get disconnected if you want to continue talking about her. Because we can do nothing for her. He said, if you want to talk about you, I'll be glad to share with you my experience, strength. And maybe from that you can get some hope. And I thought to myself, this must be advanced AA. <laughs> yeah. He said, I said, okay. He said, get something right. I said, okay. So he said, here's what I want you to do. He said, I want you to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. He said, I want you to get there early. I want you to stand at the door, and I want you to shake hands with everybody coming in there. I want you to call at least one other alcoholic every single day. Just for the fact to see how... You know what I said? I don't have to do this. I'm sober three years. He hung up the phone. So I did what he told me to do. And I called him back. I said, 
I said, Jim, this AA doesn't work in Tampa. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, they, they don't do it right. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, I mean, I'm going to these meetings. The meetings, first of all, they're only an hour long, but still an hour and a half. I said, at the end of the meeting, when they say the prayer, they don't, they don't even hold hands. I said, I tried holding hands with the guy. He looked at me. I told him I was from California. He did a whole lot of walking away from me. So I thought, you know how when we talk to our sponsor, we always know what he's going to say back? So I thought what he's going to say back to me is, why don't you move back to California where we do it right? What he said was, are they staying sober in Tampa? And I said, yeah. He said, well, you better find out what they're doing and start doing that. And I did that. I tell you, I started going to those meetings, and I hated it. And every day I had this knot in my gut. I couldn't stand it. I could not. And I'd go to the meetings, and, I'd, and they, they'd call on me, and I'd share how terrible things were and how I was dying. And, of course, there's always one good shoe yo-yo in the meeting that says, I understand how you feel. I stood in the middle of that meeting, and I said, you don't understand how, you understand how I feel. I'll come over there and whip your butt. You'll understand how I feel. And I walked out of the room, and he said, keep coming back. And I, I, and I couldn't make the pain go away. I couldn't make it go away. I couldn't do it. And then they called me at 3 o'clock in the morning. And they said, Steve, we've got a drunk. He's on a, he's on a park bench, and here's where it is. And you need to take him to the hospital so he can detox. Here's what I said. Let him die. Why won't somebody help me? I'm trying to stay sober. They hung up on me. And all I could think of in my head was, my sponsor saying, you don't have to like it, you just have to do it. And I, tell you, I, 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 I could have cared less. And I got, I got dressed, and I got in my car, and I drove down, and I picked this drunk up on the park bench. And he was so sick. We only got about 100 yards, and, and I had to stop and let him out. I let him out, and I went off around the side of the car, and I put my arm around him. And he threw up, and he started throwing up blood. And I tell you, I put my arm around him for the first time. I thought about somebody else other than me, and the pain went away. You taught me the secret of Alcoholics Anonymous is to give it away. You've given me the tools to have a peace of mind and a sense of well-being. I am so grateful to be here tonight. I'm grateful that you're here, and I'm honored to share my experience and hope. Thanks. Bad fill-in, was it? <laughs>